knocking doors down. That is right. They aim to end the stigma surrounding addiction recovery, mental health issues, and that's a worthy cause. Celebrities, experts, everyday people share their stories. And host Jason Lachance is in recovery himself from alcoholism, also traumatic history, a home from addiction, you know, his parents were addicts, sexual and emotional abuse. He has a passion for every individual, and he believes that we can turn our struggles into superpowers, helping others in the process. And he is right. Co-host Mikey Naraki has overcome substance addiction and manages anxiety as well. He's passionate about these issues and about becoming your best self. For a weekly dose of positivity, touches of humor, uplifting stories from those who have been there, subscribe to Knockin' Doors Down. That is K-N-O-C-K-I-N apostrophe, doors with a Z, down, wherever you get podcasts, or find the show at kddpodcast.com. Headspace, your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations, easy-to-use app. It's the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. That's right. If you need some help falling asleep, Headspace has sessions to help you wind down. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase overall sense of well-being. It's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule, anytime, anywhere. And of course, I think most people are becoming increasingly aware of the, the benefits of mindfulness, and here is an easy way to access it. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash drew. That is headspace, H-E-A-D-S-P-A-C-E dot com slash Drew for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash Drew. Hey everyone, welcome to Doctor Who Podcast. We appreciate y'all supporting those that support us. And uh, again, the Corolla world, I want you guys over at uh, to see the streaming shows we've been doing lately because they've been very interesting. I think you'd find them uh, worthwhile. Uh, I, I've sort of morphed that show into a place where people that have been silenced can come to speak and you can kind of hear their thoughts. I, I just think that's an important thing to be able to do these days where platforms are deplatforming people all the time. So check it out, drdrew.tv. Uh, YouTube slash Dr. Drew. And then, of course, uh, you know, your mom's house is always available at drdrew.com. Today, Andrea Ashley is with us. The podcast is Adult Child Podcast, available wherever you get podcasts. She launched the podcast just this April. The website is adultchildpodcast.com. You'll understand what the adult child reference is in a, in, in good time. Uh, Instagram at adultchildpod. Uh, Andrea, welcome to the program. I am so grateful to be here. Thank it's, you so it's much. Our pleasure. Need you a little closer okay, to this thing. Okay, sorry. Here we go. Um, yeah, no big deal. <laughs> uh, so, where shall we start this conversation? You have a lot of information, a lot of lived experience, sure do. And, and a lot of thoughts about things that I've been working with for 20, 30 years. And, you know, um, I sort of think people should be listening to those with the lived experience, but with um, success recovering. Uh, so maybe we should talk about your recovery. Do you have a recovery a story of your own? Yeah. So, um, well, let's just start with how kind of the pivotal moment that brought me to creating this podcast. So I got sober at 19. Um, I was first sent to rehab four days after my 14th birthday in the eighth grade. And did but, you live in Los Angeles? Or? No, I grew up outside of Philadelphia. And was it this, it kind of set the scene. Is this an upper middle okay. class family? Don't yes. tell us about the family dysfunction I I, yet. Okay. But, but yes. sort of. Only child. Okay. Uh, father was a, a partner for a big four public accounting firm. Um, so you were supposed to be perfect. Now, yes, oops, exactly. Oops. Yes. <laughs> oops, we great got Andrew student, instead. Great, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I get sober at 19. Yeah. And, and as you know, it is generally recommended. It's not a requirement, but it is generally recommended to not date in your first year of recovery. And this is for a couple of reasons, right? One being, uh, the high of a new relationship, the honeymoon phase can also be used as a substitute to the drugs and alcohol. Well, let's, let's, let's flip it around. Say okay. your disease will use it yes. because your disease uses everything. So it has an opportunity to use that feeling to satisfy its own evil needs, exactly. so to speak. But but the thing I – you may not think about this. The thing I, I – you know, obviously, this is not an uncommon story. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
you have to grow so much in your first year of sobriety. The thing about romantic relationships is the reason you're together is you kind of fit in ways that are kind of subconscious and are built on all the layers of who you are in that moment. To change, it's very hard to change, especially when you're young like that, when you're locked into a relationship. The other person will sort of push you back into being the person they need you to be to keep that fittedness together. Yes. Sick yeah. attracts sick, as I'd like well, to say. And, and, well, and, as, and <laughs> the other way we say it is – I hope you don't mind me interrupting because it's very no, exciting material. No, please do. Right? Please. Which, which is uh, what we always say is uh, two people early in recovery finding a relationship – Look at the other person and see a life preserver, grab it, and it's an anvil. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Because, so yeah, one is it puts you at risk for relapse, right? Like when it doesn't work out, because it typically doesn't. And then the other reason, what you're saying is that's another, yet another thing, which is the misery of breakup is a good reason to use. Yes. And 99% of the time they don't work out. But what you're saying is you're talking about what I like to refer to as BPS, broken picker syndrome. Oh, yeah. Yes. So, so what's what happens? So, so that's even yet another corollary, which is that <laughs> that the, the fittedness is based on the family. Well, and correct, we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. But the attraction is based on the family too. But that attraction, particularly when you're still injured, you're still dealing with trauma and still early in recovery. That fittedness is on based on pathology. Mm-hmm. So you're going to find somebody that's not good for sure. Yes, and they're going to keep you in that same place because that's where they're at. <sighs> Yeah, the first guy I dated, um, the age difference between us was more than my actual age. So that makes me want to vomit. Um, so, so I'm not unique, right? Like this is typically what happens is we don't pick the greatest guys. But and all of my other friends that I got sober with too, same thing. They had BPS. But what starts to happen is that their pickers start to improve. Mm. And I slowly see my girlfriends um, finding themselves in healthy relationships with emotionally available men who treat them the way that they deserve. But this was not the case for me. And while they may have improved a bit on paper, um, so my, my, my pattern is emotionally unavailable and then often active alcoholic. So everyone I've dated in sobriety over the past 12 years has either been in the program or needs to be in the program. Um, but what was really uh, increasing was not only were the guys not getting any better, I was getting worse and worse and worse in each relationship. Were you staying managing to cling to sobriety through that? Or, yes, yeah. the whole time. For real? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it I was happens. fucking miserable. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't I couldn't figure out what the fuck was wrong with me. You know, it was like in each each relationship would end and I would say to myself, I'm not going to ignore red flags in the next relationship. I'm going to do things differently. And without fail, I would find myself in the exact same situation. But each time I felt crazier, I acted crazier and I didn't have a fucking clue what was wrong with me. Were you bringing this back to your support network, to your sponsors, things like that? Yes. Did, did you have a sponsor with long-term sobriety at the yes. time? Was she trying to straighten you out? <laughs> yes, but I don't even think – it wasn't – seven years was when I started to realize what was going on. But yeah, they were. But like I said, I didn't know what was going on. You and, quite hear it. and no, but Well, they didn't really – nobody was like, this has to do with your childhood. Really? Yes. Huh. Nobody talked about attractions and fittedness in relationships. So you were not in therapy also then? Or were or with I a was bad therapist? At, at four years sober, I started working with a therapist, but she did wonderful things for me. She was a great woman, but this was not her area of expertise. So was she doing more CBT type stuff with you? Yeah. 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 Um, here's the thing. Like I it's not like I didn't I had always known that my childhood had been less than ideal. And I had worked through that stuff in, you know, in a fourth and a fifth step. But I, I thought because I was never physically abused and because I was never sexually abused and because things looked nice on the outside and we had money, like, sure, it was less than ideal, but other kids had had it way fucking worse than I had. Mm-hmm. So I just had no idea the true impact that my upbringing had on me. So at seven years sober, I, I start to understand what's going on. I have this 
three-week relationship that ends. I'm literally acting like my husband of 30 years just died. Right. And I have this moment where, and I was like non-functional. Like it got to the point, like, because I didn't realize that I was having these trauma responses. But I had this moment of clarity where all of a sudden I realized a little bit of space was created in my head. And I realized that there was no way that the reaction that I was having had anything to do with this guy. Right. And um, and so then I started to understand what the what the problem was. You had insight in that moment. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I heard, well, then I heard somebody share about. I went to a, an AA meeting and I heard a woman with uh, over thirty years sobriety. She talked about how at ten years sober she had hit a bottom as a result of a you know dysfunctional relationship, and that it was through that that she realized that she um, you know that it was adult child issues. Adult child of alcoholics. Are, yes. Is alcohol your primary drug? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, so I go. So I read the book. What's, what's your ethnic background? German, um, both sides in the family. Yep, I going. didn't stand a fucking chance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, so I read the it's more the Bavarian Austrian gene that gets, gets it going. <laughs> go, go ahead. <laughs> so I read. Um, so I read the book "Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families," and it blows my fucking mind. I relate to it even more than. Uh, the big book. And, and as a single child, did you have multiple roles you had to play? Oh, yes. I started off as the hero. Right, right. And then at nine years old, I became the scapegoat. Perfect. And I leaned – I really you leaned that into one. that role. <laughs> well, your disease liked it, right? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So so I see this lady at a meeting like a week later and I go up to her and I was like, I heard you share. I read this book. It's amazing. Um, and she looks at me and she goes, Andrea, um, this is not something that you're going to be able to fix in a few months. She said, this will take you years. Well, this is a really important message right here Mm -hmm. because people believe they're going to fix complex phenomena like this by reading a book. Mm -hmm. I did. The the book is sort of – I don't even think it is a roadmap. It's just an it's just a description of why you need to go do work. Awareness. Yeah. It's awareness. It's awareness that there's work to be done. Here's why. Here's the work that it's, what it's going to be about. But the work is interpersonal and it's experiential and it may include specific trauma therapies too. Exactly. Yeah. So when she says that to me, I go, years? I'm like thinking, like, lady, I need to have had this fixed yesterday or at least in a few months. I'm almost 30. You know, I don't have time. And I really just hoped to myself that her childhood had been a lot more fucked up than mine had been, you know? So I thought, I thought, I've read this book. I'll take a year off from dating, and that should surely suffice. Okay, well, that's something. Well, it didn't do shit, right? No, you didn't do any work during that time. Not really. I did. Um, But not but not. Not but not what it needed to be done. Again, is that I, I always like to blame, put blame at the foot of the. Medical provider, because somebody, I feel like somebody should have grabbed you and put you in some kind of treatment. So, oh, shit. Yeah. So did you have crappy treatment during that time again? I mean, by crappy, I mean sort of not getting to the you know, real yes, material. Yes. We weren't doing trauma. Like, yeah. we weren't doing Didn't trauma somebody work. say, how about some trauma stuff? No. Okay. I don't. I don't. Right. Well, no. Somebody suggested that I, I was reluctant to start with a new therapist, right? Because that seemed like such an ordeal, you know? Um, so, so that first, aha, I call it my, the tale of two Brian's, right? Like Brian number one was at seven years sober. I take the year off and then I meet Brian number two and let, let me predict looked on the surface to be totally unlike all the other guys. Oh, you was the same thing. Okay. No, no. Well, yeah, a little bit. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, like, yes. I, it's not one of those guys at least. And he ends up being one of those guys. He, all of the guys that I had dated up until that point had been, drunks and assholes brian number two wasn't an asshole he was just a drunk Mm. and it was yes (laughs) and it was insane like Mm. i um i found myself at a what's really interesting about your story is is that you know we'll get into the trauma and the layers and all stuff it's all there but but the symptom that you're manifesting it correct me if i'm wrong or maybe it's only in retrospect it sounds like this but one of the big symptoms, and this is not that uncommon, is you have an overwhelming attraction to people with this genetic makeup mm-hmm. called alcoholism. And that must have been what dad was. Mom. And it's a good thing and a bad thing, right? Uh, and it's some some people, I've seen some co's without alcoholism, just go, I just love alcohol. I, I just have to be around those people. They just are my people. And that's the way it goes. And I have to do lots of work to learn how to be around them. And uh, it's not that. 
I don't see that that often, but so it sort of jumps out at me as as that I'm both. You're both, and and that that symptom is so prominent with you. You know, it, it's it's like it's it's most people. It's a little bit more about managing your own dysregulation. For you, it's about this intense attraction, and and both to be fair, but that attraction sort of is interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it was not interesting. Well, to me, it, let me doesn't, tell you. it doesn't do good things, <laughs> but it is. It is. It was not very something? interesting. Isn't that something? But but what's good about this is. You can talk to other women about the source of attractions. One hundred percent. Because because women and men don't get that. They don't get. No one ever talks about where attractions come from. Particularly attractions when your patterns are being attracted to people that never seem to work out or never seem to be available. Well, seem to be alcoholics all the time. Whatever it might be. Mm. So keep going. I'm sorry. So no, Brian number fine. two. So Brian number two. It's. I mean, I found myself um, leaving work at eleven in the morning to go pull him out of bars. Um, I, you know, I spent three days with him in a hotel where he was just drinking around the clock and it was, I mean, I was in so much more pain than I had been in when I hit my bottom 12, mm. you know, when I got sober. Oh, interesting. Um, and it was in that moment when that ended that, um, I realized that what I was dealing with was just as serious, if not more than my alcoholism. Let me ask this. It, it the, as you approach that bottom Codependency mm-hmm. bottoms, call it what yep. it is, right? Had you been developing healthier relationships amongst friends and peers? Yeah, so that's the thing too is that I had – this was really the only area of my life where this was showing up. But but to be able to see it, to have that moment of clarity, I feel like you need to be first forming connections with actually healthy people, mm-hmm. <laughs> friendships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I suspect and, – and not even – I'm not even talking about the program. I'm mm-hmm. talking about maybe some novel friendships and things – people you were suddenly hanging around with you might not have hung around with uh, in previous years. Was anything like that happening? Hard to say. I mean not really because I mean it was just – it was kind of like a progressive illness. And, and no, because what was happening too was that – you know, I was a sh- I was a shit show. Like when I was, I was the girl that like would get kicked out of the party, would t- go right back to the party, cause a scene, and cause everyone to get arrested. And so I didn't have very like many friends, obviously. And so what was happening as this disease, as I'm staying sober, but as this disease is progressing, mm-hmm. I slowly start seeing myself become the girl that no one wants to be friends with. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was losing relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> But the good thing is, is that I was never one that hopped from one relationship to the next. Romantic or yes. friendship? Yeah, romantic. I would have significant throughout my sobriety, probably because it would take me. It would I mean it would take so, me like three years to get over a three week relationship. So interesting. No, hmm. So it's it's almost it's interesting. It's I don't know if that's true, but I'm talking to myself yes. now. But but it's almost like pure codependency without sex and love addiction. Exactly. And I would be in my prime. I mean, I would be as happy as can be yeah. when I would be single. Feeling great about myself, yeah. and the minute I would get into another relationship, the switch would go off, mm. and I didn't realize that it was trauma. Um, so when that really, so when I hit that bottom, um, I googled adult children of alcoholics therapists, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Stephanie Brown, but she was one of the original yeah. thought leaders. Yes, yes. That so she she has a place called the Addictions Institute in Menlo Park. And so I came across her website and I called her. So I have nine years sober at this point. And um, I told her about what was going on with me. And she said, I don't have any availability, but I have a woman that works in my practice and she's in San Francisco. Is that where you were? Yes. Mm. And um, I want to see if it's a good fit. If it's not, uh, call me back. Was, and, she in the, was she circling in the Patrick Carnes world at one time? I don't know. Too? Okay. Um, so, yeah. So I started working with Mary and... Um, I saw her twice a week for over a year and a half, and I still see her once a week, and this woman fucking changed, <laughs> saved my life. And what was different about uh, how she approached you and what happened right, right off the top? She is an adult child, yeah, and she knows this shit like the back of her hand. Yeah. This is her world. Like their group how did of- she get in? What did she? What technique do you know? Or I mean, it's all. What what, I guess it's what psychodrama therapy, psychotherapy. Well, what, let's put it this way: you, compared to your therapist that you were connected to, was doing some decent work with you. You go now into Dr. Brown's office. What's different there? What, what other than the the knowledge base? What does she do? Well, different? first, well, first of all, I'm an, I'm finally willing to do the work, right? And I've had some more awarenesses, but she 
she knew the questions to ask. She knew she knew she could follow the connect yes the maps. and she could ask questions and she could point out different things um it's it's this it's kind of like the same thing of like why why the relationship with a sponsor is so uh special it's because the, not only she could relate right like she was also an adult me, child me but, too yeah, yes me but, too. but she also had yeah. the um Train. the understanding and Train. i think and i'm curious what your perspective is on this you know I think that this adult child stuff, this the impact, the disease of family dysfunction. I feel like that's even more confusing for somebody to understand than just purely alcoholism or addiction. Well, the way the way we say it is, uh, let's say you're involved with a codependent, we would say, you know, the co was probably sicker than you are, one hundred percent. And and the reason we say that is the material is deeper and more tender. And uh, at least the alcoholic can just start living a certain kind of life, get involved in a process, and things do get a lot better. For the co, they need a highly skilled person to help them get at that stuff because mm-hmm. it's so far down. And in my world, I always think of it as the – well, you have to access that, that part of your brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's way, way, way down. And And for that to happen – you have to have a real connectedness with the therapist mm-hmm. and she has to know how to ask the right questions to keep moving it deeper and deeper. In my own therapy, I can tell you one of the most startling experiences I had was as you go deeper, there's like like almost like uh, continental plates start shifting. Mm-hmm. Do you get that feeling? Like, like things start shifting around and you start seeing the world from a different place. It's like you're literally – like your self has gone and moved over here and is looking back going, oh, it, I, I experience it differently. I just don't – I don't just understand it differently. I experience it differently. Can mm-hmm. you talk about that for people? Well, yeah. I mean a large um, revelation that I had and kind of what led to this podcast was but a few months into working with her is I'm sitting at work. I'm a CPA at the time working in audit. It's like dad. Yep. Interesting. Yes. Um, <laughs> if I can't I, marry now, him, I'm, yes. I'm become him. Now I'm gonna. Now I'm a recovering CPA. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I had this this realization: how not once had I stopped to consider what a fulfilling life or career would look like, right? And how do, do you, you get a sense of why that was the case? Well, because all I'd fucking cared about up until that point was finding a man and getting married. That truly had been my... And also, I it was the false self, right? Like, Correct. I yes. think that's the bigger issue. There was no you there to pff, have those thoughts. Yes. And now you start having a self. Yes. A fully evolved self, not a self that was built on externals. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I realized... Ooh, that's, deeply, that's deeply profound, you know. It's, well, that's I why this, people, this uh, is such a crazy experience for me to be sitting with you right now, because... This is this is it. Like this is it's all tied together, right? Like this these years of pain and then hitting that bottom and then doing this work and then having this realization and, and it hasn't just been about healing from the trauma of my childhood. It has been been about living a life of depth and meaning and figuring out like why the fuck was I put on this earth and you know, living to my potential. But what as you say that though, I I feel like I'm talking to you from your sort of toes on up. Mm. While I bet if I had spoke, if you'd said things like that 10 years ago, it would have been just a concept you were talking 1, about. 1,000%. It would have been in your brain as opposed to in your body. Mm-hmm. And and people, we live in a time, man, when we are disconnected and no narcissistic shit. and all coming out of horrible trauma family systems and defending those systems and blaming those or blaming those systems and then projecting and acting out in the world. It, it's... <laughs> Well, I'm glad we're having this conversation because it's time for people to do more work like this. But No kidding. Yeah. And that's a big reason why I wanted to create the podcast was for people who are maybe in the same shoes as me, oblivious to the fact that the recurring issues that they encounter in life are the result of their dysfunctional upbringing. You know, I didn't think that what I experienced was was trauma because there was never one single catastrophic event. I wasn't aware of complex PTSD, you know? So it's the chronic trauma of an alcoholic father. And mom? Ma- no, mom. alcoholic mother. Alcoholic mother. Mm-hmm. And then workaholic absent father. Oh, okay, there you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and was dad, did he come from an alcoholic family? Yes, both or, of them. Of course. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't get the gene, he married the gene, which is sort of how it works. Um, or maybe the workaholism was his gene, his manifestation. 
I, I will tell you, I will, I, I will just share with you that usually uh, it's the, the co that gets the workaholism and then marries the, the alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Doesn't necessarily have the gene necessarily, but has all the effects of it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so here you are. You're, you're dealing, you're connecting, you're building a self, you're connecting. And so, and so I, I imagine what she was doing was connecting you to your primary feelings, mm-hmm. building yourself. Uh, and then was she doing some trauma work on top of that? Yeah, and I did some EMDR as well. Oh, perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've heard me talk about AMCN before. I think you now know that full cost of emergency medical flight may not be covered. Even with comprehensive coverage, you get hit with a, a substantial deductible or big co-pays. Protect your family and your finances with an Air MedCare Network membership. As a member, if an emergency arises, the expense of air medical transport is completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Memberships cost as little as $85 a year and covers your entire household every day, even when you're away from home. That is just pennies a day. Now, we all know that the unexpected can happen. An AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. For a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you will get up to a $50 e-gift card when you join. Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew and use offer code Drew. That is airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew. Well, we already were in a mental health crisis and then COVID came along. Thank God people are understanding they can access mental health by, by a variety of means now, anxiety, depression. If you want help, Brightside offers personalized, life-changing anxiety and depression care from your home. Most mental health providers make getting help difficult. There are barriers. Brightside offers help on a full spectrum of anxiety and depression conditions. Just go to brightside.com slash Drew, take a quick free mental health assessment, and within 48 hours, you are connected to your expert provider to start your personalized treatment plan. Whether you choose therapy, medication, or both, all plans follow the highest clinical standards and are based on American Psychiatric Association guidelines. 85% of Brightside members feel better within 12 weeks. It's affordable, flat monthly fee, no hidden cost. You get all the help you need without worrying about any big hidden bills. Plus, with Brightside's Better Care Guarantee, you get a full refund within 30 days, no questions asked. Join thousands of Brightside members taking back their lives. Take your free mental health assessment and get up to $100 credit on your first month of treatment at brightside.com slash Drew. That is brightside, B-R-I-G-H-T-S-I-D-E, brightside.com slash Drew. One more time, that is brightside.com slash Drew. Dealdash.com, I was looking around the other day. I've heard that people are saving a lot of money, and it's astonishing what they're able to do there. Auctions on a wide variety of quality products. People were winning them at crazy prices. So here's the question. How much can you save at DealDash.com? That is up to you and your diligence. Uh, Some people save 80%. Some have reported 90%. Even somebody is getting 99% off. The only way to find out how much you can save is to visit DealDash.com now. Use promo code DREW for 100 free bids with your first purchase. That's DealDash.com, promo code D-R-E-W, to get 100 free bids and see how much you can save. DealDash, where deals come true. So that's it. That's the trifecta, right? And it's in all of its interpersonal, intersubjective. You have to have that supportive, caring, attuned other that knows what the fuck they are doing. No kidding. Um, to to do this work, and and uh, beware, everybody. A lot of so called professionals are really not trained to do this work, and and that's fine. They can do CBT and things like that. It can be quite effective in certain things, but not this. Not, not this. And I feel so grateful because I, I think that, right? I think that most people are not, uh, they are not able to have the, get the, have the resources to have the therapist that can do this work. Because I, I feel like you really have to find somebody that knows this shit like the back of their hand. Mm-hmm. And most therapists do not, you mm-hmm. know? And so that's why I just feel so lucky that I had this opportunity, you know? They have to have done their own work too. 100%. A lot of it. Mm-hmm. And it's not something you can do without – I mean there are a few people that are sort of naturally gifted and can kind of kind of do it. I, I come across those once in a while. Not me. I, were, I had to do 11 years of therapy. Don't, don't, don't think I, – I had the I – I was severe codependent and, and I had bad boundaries and I was not properly hooked up to my primary affect states. I had a lot of 
empathy and a lot of knowledge, but it was not hooked up properly until mm-hmm. I did the, the work. <laughs> it's what it is, you know. Um, let, let me dial back a little bit of uh, – I want to hear something about the, the environments you were treated in. Uh, thoughts about – because you – and by the way, shout out to a Juicy Scoop and yes. Heather McDonald, which is why we are together. Good Christian service. <laughs> she always says that. I could not, you guys, uh, juicy scoopers out there. I I heard the two of them. You were on our show, I yeah. guess, about two weeks ago, and you were talking about therapeutic boarding schools. And Heather made the comment that you know she had asked her audience, "Was there anybody that ever got sent to one of these schools that turned out okay?" And um, and so then I shot her a message. I was like, "I'd love to come on Juicy Scoop," and and she's like, "I think you'd be a better fit for Doctor Drew. Let me see if I can get you on." I did not expect. To hear anything. Really? Why? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I yeah, mean, I I'm just I'm little old Andrea, yeah, right? You don't know, right? You and don't know. so, um, yes, I want you to know that when I received uh, the email from Gary, um, it was a spiritual experience for oh. me. My, I mean, my whole body was vibrating. Oh, so. good. Well, I hope it. Hope it. <laughs> yeah. Ends up. Being yeah, me too. <laughs> well, our our world. My hope is this will um, go out well beyond the the Corolla world. This is. The stuff that a lot of people need to hear. Maybe maybe Heather will push it out too a little bit. Yeah, let's work on her. Yeah. Um, but but did you respond? I forget your response. Was it that therapy schools were useful to you or that? No. Yeah. Yeah. So let me just back up a little bit. You know, so I, I found out my mother was an alcoholic when I was seven. We were out to dinner. I could tell that something was wrong. I later asked my mother uh, what's wrong. And, and that's when she told me that she was an alcoholic. Good for her. Yeah. At least she knew it. Yeah. Um, and so then. Did she ever do anything about it? Yeah. Yeah. Um and so she bless she, her heart. Yes. Yeah, bless her heart. Yeah. No, she she no, what happened was I started to act out at 12, mm. right? And that's when things started. That's when she was able to get her drinking under control. Well, but sometimes right? sometimes though having an alcoholic parent with a kid that's acting out and the and the Alcoholic parent can identify the gene. It, it can be helpful. <laughs> it can it really was. can. It was right because, yeah. and I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Right, yeah. Like, you know. So I get scapegoated essentially, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. So I, I'm, I, I, I'm grateful for that because I think that that's why I was able to get sober so young. I agree. Because um, so, otherwise, we might still be in it. Mm-hmm. So. So yeah, I mean, I started drinking in the sixth grade. Um, regular pot smoker by eighth grade. Um, and yeah, so four days after my 14th birthday, I got sent to the Karen foundation. Mm-hmm. I didn't know they had an adolescent program. They did. Uh. And, and Aerosmith actually donated a lot of the money for it. So mm-hmm. they have a huge like platinum record in it. And the best thing about it, it's since changed, but you could smoke cigarettes if you had par- parental consent. Interesting. So that was the shit. Yeah. Where, um, where was, the, where were they? In Wer- Wernersville, PA. Pennsylvania. Okay. Yeah. The original Karen foundation. Yeah. Um, and so so that was a rather traumatizing experience, though, because uh, the initial uh, manifestation of, I guess, the disease of family dysfunction was separation anxiety from my mom. Oh, oh, mm. yeah. So okay. that started. So that's when I initially got scapegoated. So I started. I wasn't able to spend the night away from home, um, and then that translated into me having to sleep into bed with with my mom every night. Mm. And so at nine, I get sent to a therapist. And I remember asking my parents years later when I was a teenager, I'm like, hey, um, did you ever tell the therapist that like you were an alcoholic and <laughs> you and dad fought all the time? And of course not. Uh, and do you, do you think the fighting, uh, in addition to being fearful that mom was going to whatever, uh, and the trauma of having a, an abandoning mm-hmm. father and the trauma of the out-of-control mom, all that stuff is very traumatic. Um but did the fighting have a big effect too, do you think? A thousand percent. Yeah. I mean, I... I that, that tends to be more than people think. It was my first addiction, I think, was to, you know, one of the a tra- a laundry list traits for adult children is we become addicted to excitement. And mm-hmm. I truly believe Drama. that my first Drama. addiction was to the dysfunction in my home. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting on the stairs, like being a little girl sitting on the stairs, listening to my parents fight and just like getting an adrenaline rush, mm-hmm. you know? And I needed to hear for, every word that they were saying. For those of you that are not addicts, it, 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 that's not going to make sense to you. Mm-hmm. It makes sense to me as somebody who knows addiction very, very well. Addicts can turn almost anything into a source of high if it's intense. Uh, the, the valence almost doesn't matter. Good, bad doesn't matter. The high matters. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, yeah. So then when I got to Karen Foundation, I mean, it wasn't until the sixth grade that I was able to actually spend the night away from home. So it was a rather <laughs> traumatizing experience yeah. for me. And, and talk to me about boundaries in your family, mm-hmm. because that, that sounds like part of the big, big issue. Can you can you speak to that? Or I don't want to out anybody. I don't want anybody to be hurt by what you have to say. Um, but let's just say, let's talk in generalities. Um, we're, when we're talking about boundaries, we're talking about everyone being responsible for everybody else's feelings. Uh, and alcoholic families are notorious for that. Part of the sleeping in the bed is being all the way responsible. You know, you got to be. I got to watch her. Make sure I'm getting control of her because because myself and my emotional landscape is dependent on how she's doing. Mm-hmm. That's codependency. Yeah. That's so um, there was a lot of emotional parentification that went on in, oh, in the interesting. home. You know, is that when you were the hero? Yes. Yeah. And so, um, so was part of the uh, scapegoat when you became the scapegoat and acting out against that. Yeah, I think it was obviously a cry for help, right? Well, yeah, but sometimes the kids, uh, actually, the healthier kids, really resent being parentalized and and uh, being made the hero. They don't like it. You know, it kind of goes through the same of when I would sit on the stairs and get the high. Mm. Um, I think that. Uh, so what was going on in our home was a secret to the rest of the world, of right? So, um, you know, both of my parents, but mostly my father, I mean, he used me as um, his emotional support and confidant, right? Against mom. Yeah. Did she have jealousy and envy and stuff? No. Good. Um, Whew, but You missed that one. <laughs> yeah. So I was, you know, I was the only one that he, I mean, I, and also too, I mean, being seven, eight years old and- so it's a bad boundary issue, that's all. Yeah. So that's his codependency. But I think that I also found that exciting, too. Of course. Like, having the secret from the rest of the world, getting to play emotional support to both of my parents, having to take care of my mother when my dad was out of town, it was all, you know, so I'm adrenaline. Gonna ask you a, so I'm going to ask you a crazy question. Please. The, the crazy things occur to me when I'm around mm-hmm. people that have these histories and things. Do you miss it now? Do you miss that excitement, that confidant and that role and... No, not, not at conflicted all. about it. No, and I've had to, you know, I've done a lot of work, right? Were you? Uh, yeah, you know, okay, I'll tell you where I've noticed that it shows up is that um, anytime that there's like I see police activity or anything like that, like I, I remember being in an AA meeting once and all these cop cars started like coming outside and there was something going on. And I literally, there's 30 people in the meeting. I'm the only one that does it. I have to physically leave the meeting go and go on. out, stand outside to watch what's going on. Yeah. So some of that's your disease too. Yes. Because that's, this, that's the extraordinary thing about addiction is, and, and this is part of the genetic um, evolutionary heritage of addiction is addicts are drawn to extreme circumstances mm-hmm. and they are at their best. That's when you're clear and you're not anxious and you're high and you're, engaging <laughs> and uh, and evidently if it's like a military action that's an advantage as opposed to somebody like me that loses fine motor coordination yeah, and freaks yeah. out and gets anxious and <laughs> so isn't that something so that's why the, that's why the gene persists everybody yeah I had found a police like uh, blotter you know whatever the thing is there's an app to where you can listen to the police yep. scanner and I had to de- I had to delete that off my phone <laughs> did, did you ever did you ever think about going into law enforcement anything like that no, no okay no all right, because that, that's where some people end up sometimes with this. No. Okay, so here we are. Uh, yeah, so so I get sent to the Karen Foundation, and then so that's in the eighth grade, and then um, you know all throughout high school, in and out of uh, adolescent outpatients. Right now, what are you, what's your opinion on these? I mean, what I think is, I think that uh, teenage intensive outpatient programs are truly only a place to meet other teenagers who, unfortunately, they yes. end up being like that. Yes, the, the, there are. I, the problem with those programs is the range of patients usually – in order for it to be a business, mm-hmm. you have to have very low functioning and very high functioning in the same room and that's never good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I mean some there, there's some okay ones out there, particularly if it's early in recovery type stuff. We're trying to get somebody enrolled in, in, in recovery. Yeah. That, that's it sort plants of, the seed for sure. Exactly. And, and if it's homogeneous enough and you can get a peer relationship going and enough, it, it's all, as always, it's about the staff, right? If you have really talented staff that is a highly unified front, bunch of people, you can make some progress. Mm-hmm. Later, uh, it's more complicated. Mm-hmm. It's more complicated. But that's why I will occasionally use therapeutic living, educational living environments. But though, there's only like two. That are any good. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So I got sent to um, a school in Maine. It's called the Hyde School. I don't know if they're going to like sue me for talking about them. Kind of a farm. Uh, no. I mean, not really. Um. So yeah. So it's a you know it's um it was a a character building school, right? Yeah. Air quotes. Uh -uh. Um. So this place. it was kind of like a therapeutic boarding school light. Like we got to go home for Christmas and we could talk on the phone and stuff. But, um, yeah. So, so they had the rules, right? They were called ethics and it was, um, no lying, cheating, stealing drugs, alcohol, tobacco, sex. And then they had brothers keeper where, you know, if you knew anything about somebody Mm -hmm. else, you had to rat them out or it would be just as bad as if you had done it yourself. Mm. And then they had something called spirit of the law, which was essentially like if you had planned to do something, but you didn't actually go through with it, you would still get into trouble as if you had done it. Was this a like a religious based program? No. It sounds Calvinist. No. I don't I don't know what the fuck was going on there. But so then when you would get into trouble, well, first of all, you know, kids would just rat each other out, right? Like that's how you survived there. And was the was it lying too? You just lie about other kids' stuff. Yeah, okay. Yes. Well, yeah. so what they would so, do was like because would... I'm guessing there were a lot of kids at least operating at a borderline level, and the borderlines love the splitting, and that's a good way to split. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you so when you would get into trouble, you would go on something called two four. So that's when you would get up and do these workouts at five thirty in the morning. You would do yard work all day. You you know had to sit alone at meals and all that stuff. So. It was, um, yeah, I mean, you just learn to rat people out. So I remember, so so there was this one time, it was in between Christmas and uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so this was probably back when, what was it called, Silk Road, like probably hadn't been busted yet. So this kid, he buys all these prescription pills from India or whatever. And they find out. And so they decide to put the whole school on 2-4, even though not everybody was involved. So all 200 of us. So the 5.30 a.m. workout that we had to do consisted of us doing, we had to do 25 jumping jacks, but it had to like all be like perfectly like in sync. And so it took over an hour and there would always be the kid like right at the end that would like, you know, flare his <laughs> arms up and <laughs> start Oh boy. But, but yeah, it wasn't until, so I, I managed to convince my parents to not send me back, but it was after that point, I would say it was around 16 was when I really crossed, when I really became a pickle, as you know, we like to say. Um, so for those of you who don't know. And that was after this. Therapy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And that's when I, every time I drank, um, I blacked out and every time I drank, I had a severe personality change for the worst. And by 17, I was a daily drinker. And by 18, I was drinking around the clock painful yeah it was miserable and was what was the bottom with that if you you care no of course so yeah so you know i i went to florida state i lasted six weeks um you know my world had gotten so isolated you know i spent so many of my weekends my senior year of high school essentially just like sitting alone at my computer drinking 40s of steel reserve Mm -hmm. um you know here i am in (laughs) suburban philadelphia but i just thought so I had a I, so in the seventh grade, um, I me and my friend um, gave blowjobs to two of the ninth grade boys, and um, my reputation obviously was was very ruined because of that. So that was like a very um, a big moment in my life where a lot of toxic shame was ingrained in me, and so I really felt like that had left a stain on me, you know. And I really didn't have many friends after that going forward. And so I just remember sitting there, um, my senior of high school, just thinking, everything's going to be different next year when I go off to college and I have a fresh start, you know? And guess what? Nothing was different. I was still the girl that was getting kicked out of parties. Um, and I, that's when I went through my first, like, really bad, um, like, when I had my first really bad delirium tremens. Um, and so, yeah, so then I, I left school. I withdrew. I had to go to the medical center. My parents had moved to Jacksonville, Florida at the time. And I am, so I start going to an outpatient, I start going to meetings, and then I decide that I'm going to date a boy, right? (laughs) At six months. So this boy decides that he's actually going to date somebody else that's in the program. And so um, I knew that I was going to see them at a meeting that night. And I realized that there was clonopin in my my parents' house. So I take one pill, I go to the meeting, and I remember I go home and I Google is one pill a relapse? <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Yes, it is when it's not prescribed to you and you take it, it to change the way that you feel. Pres- <laughs> yeah, even when it's prescribed, I, I worry about it. 
Um, and so I just, uh, so then a week goes by and I'm like, hey, it's been a whole week. I haven't thought about taking a pill. And then I take I another can, one. I can handle it. Yeah. Then it's two days. Yeah. And then I go off to the races, but I'm still working a program. I picked up a nine month ship when I didn't have nine months. Um, eventually started drinking again. And then, you know, I kind of hit another bottom there. And that was in September of 2008. So I'll have 13 years oh, in September. But, you know, I think the big. It's rarely a straight line. No. I mean, no. very few people. Yeah. Your, your, your disease requires you to test. Mm hmm. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, that's how you learn. It's that part of that experiential process. Well, with you working, you know, one thing that I'm grateful for is that for me, I didn't have 10, 20, 30 years where drinking was fun and where I controlled it. So, like, as you know, it talks about in the big book how the great obsession of every alcoholic is that one day they can then control their drinking like they once did. I never had that experience. So I don't have that work. fantasy yeah, yeah. that I can drink successfully. It's, it's the, I've never done it before. It's the binge alcoholics that really maintain that fantasy because they have the veneer of control, right? I only drank for three days and I drank for two months after that. I was fine. You know, and that's those are tough to treat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to remind you again about Inside Tracker, DNA, blood, fitness tracking, all real time and complete. Giving you a complete picture of your health and wellness. Inside Tracker, the only human performance system that integrates real time physiomarker data from Fitness Tracker with your existing blood and DNA biomarker data. This unprecedented combination of blood and DNA and Fitness Tracker data adds an exponential level of precision and customization to your Inside Tracker action plan. They don't really show you normal biomarker zones, they show you the optimal biomarker zones and the numbers that are best for you. Each recommendation is backed by science, rigorously reviewed, directly linked to a published, peer-reviewed scientific publication. And again, the cutting-edge algorithmic engine will analyze your blood, your DNA, your lifestyle habits, and guide you with a goal-oriented action plan of nutrition, fitness, and lifestyle recommendations. They tell you what you need and why. An Inside Tracker tracks your progress every day, every step of the way, until you are reaching your performance goals and hopefully living longer, healthier life. And for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. What I want you to do to get that 25% off, just go to Inside Tracker. That's one word, T R A C K E R, insidetracker.com slash Drew. Well, you know I love public rec. Gosh, uh, most pants, the length is not right or doesn't fit the waist. Fabric is too stiff or too tight. Not with public rec. Check it out. Uh, they make leisure wear in waist and seam sizes that are specific to you. And the their best day all day, every day. Their best-selling all-day, every-day pants are stylish alternatives to sweatpants. It's like you're wearing slacks, but it feels like you're wearing sweats. Their clothing is great for lounging, looking sharp, Wherever, whatever you're doing, this this their clothing is good for all of it. I bring it everywhere. And, of course, sizing that makes sense. All the things you want in clothing from breathable, stretchy, moisture-wicking fabric, you can wear 24-7, and they constantly look new and not a wrinkle in anything. They have zipper pockets, so you're not stuff's not falling off. They're deep enough, pockets in the back and the front. Nine different colors. I, I have multiple colors. And they have comfortable shorts. I love their shorts. T-shirts, Henley polos, hoodies, jackets, even golf gear. I, I can't say enough about the products. I wear them all the time. Please get me more. I want more public rec. And as the world is opening back up, make sure you've got clothes that are as flexible as your life is. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now they have an exclusive offer just for the Dr. Drew Podcast listeners. Go to publicrec.com slash Drew, and you'll receive 10% off. That is publicrec.com slash Drew for 10% off. I wanted to ask you a question. You know, I was listening to um, an interview that you had done a couple years ago, but um, what are your thoughts about when to start addressing this trauma stuff. So like for me, I yeah. mean, you hear that a lot, right? Yeah. Like between five to 10 years is kind of when this stuff comes to the surface. Yeah. That was another thing that I realized. I thought that I was like this weirdo that was having like, I'm seven years sober and I'm feeling like that. And what I came to realize is that this is actually very common. Very common. Very common. Uh, and it, it's, it's similar, but not exactly like uh, alcoholic and that you have to be ready. Mm-hmm. Now, a highly skilled person can get you there. So 
but when alcoholics with codependency issues, which is most because you come from alcoholic families typically, right? It's usually five or seven years, sometimes 10. And I, I think of it as recovery. When you start actually getting treatment for these issues, I, I sort of think of that just categorizing what people are doing as if you're not dealing with those things, you can be in recovery and be doing very, very well. But full recovery, complete mm-hmm. recovery – Always requires personal growth, interpersonal therapies, trauma therapy, all that stuff. It just does. So the question is, when do we do that? Unfortunately, a lot of treatment centers start right off with that mm-hmm. stuff. And that, that do, you, do you remember your first days in treatment? <laughs> no, your first year, kind of vague, right? And so doing it early makes zero sense. S- saying that trauma is an issue for alcoholics and is motivating the disease is a very different. Uh, observation then we need to treat it immediately because you can't you just can't it just isn't this doesn't work uh, and more often than not too much of that kind of work again your disease uses it against you because your disease is not in remission yet and it will use everything uh, and it can be inciting mm-hmm. it can it can motivate people to use more again and again go back and you know sort of it's it can be dysregulating and you have to first the, the disease has to be under control. Mm-hmm. It has to be sort of managed. It doesn't make sense to do anything before that, right? I agree. And, and as you know, you go through all kinds of mood shifts and your anxiety changes and your sleep changes and everything changes for like six months, maybe a year or two, right? Uh, and so to then go in, I think it's reasonable <clears throat> early to be getting people engaged in closeness with other people. Because I think it helps with the relationship with the sponsor. Mm-hmm. In other words, you might keep your sponsor at arm's length if you don't trust, you know, if you don't have the ability to to be close with good boundaries, which you didn't, right? No. Uh, and and a therapist can model that for you, so you can then do that with your peers and, and with your sponsor, and you can start building slowly towards towards something. But that slow, 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 slow. Um, but you know, it's everybody's different that way, and, it, and I, you, every individual should be evaluated on, on their own terms. Do you think that when you hear these stories of somebody with I don't know ten or twenty years of sobriety and and they, and they kill themselves, oh. like or yeah, or they go out? I mean, I think that's what it is. I think that when people relapse, a lot of the times in, in longer term sobriety, yeah. it's because they haven't dealt with this stuff. Well, I can share with you that I would argue the number one reason they go out after even anything. You know, a year or more, it's relationships. Mm-hmm. Relationships take addicts out. And that tells you that there's some leftover material there mm-hmm. that needs to be kind of worked on. Um, in terms of killing themselves, well, okay. yeah, maybe that, that's, that's extreme. But we're really talking about <laughs> mood stuff yeah. and, and, it, and it gets very Mental complicated. Illness. Yeah, there's other things going on. But of course, this stuff undealt with is, is can be all, obviously part of it. And, and then accessing trauma therapy is really important. Really important for just about everybody in the program. It doesn't have to be long-term stuff. It just has to be something where you are getting connected to that part. Some people are very lucky and they'll start doing that automatically in their relationship with the sponsor. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that happens. Uh, But usually you need a little more – Full recovery, as I say, complete recovery. Is that what I was saying in that interview with the time that you heard? Yeah, you are. Yep, yep, yep. I don't, I've never, never really changed that opinion. I, I, I have seen a lot of wasted time early in recovery, and I've seen a lot of uh, inadvisable, aggressive treatments that either <clears throat> did nothing or, or made people worse. Yeah, yeah. It's. Um, I think it has to happen right when we're ready. Well, that's the the, the disease model, right? You, it, but but I I would argue that a really skilled person can get you ready, can get you there. Um, and if you're lucky enough to be engaged with that kind of thing, and you have money to be able to do it, which is rare, right? Uh, so I don't see that very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel so grateful that I've had um, just really wonderful help, and um, the transformation has just been mind blowing. Yeah, I, I wish I'd known you. In your in your uh, in your stuff, because yeah. I because you know why? Be, not not that I would wish that on you. <laughs> it's just that that I that that process and seeing people blossom like that is why I'm in this work. Mm-hmm. It's it's why I'm not interested in partial recoveries or replacement therapies. Those are oh, you can save lives with those. Yes, you can. But I'm not I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the Andreas that mm-hmm. that you know that go from 
the blackout drunk that can't stay in school to this amazing person. I, I saw that happen many times and before I understood this stuff and I was like, what, what is that? What, I want to understand that. It's incredible. You know? <laughs> exactly. And they would just kind of, you know, back, back in those days, they would kind of, you don't understand. You know, you, yeah. you, you, you'll come to it someday, maybe. <laughs> it, it, I mean, I just think that this is it, right? And I'm sure you think that I feel like this is truly the root of, you know, addiction. Uh, this is where well, it all root, is. Be careful. Okay, yeah, no. The genes are really the roots. The, the, the families f- are the sort of the fuel. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's this faulty programming, right? Yeah. And I guess we didn't really talk about the term adult child, but so basically. We, and we, I'm going to warn well, you, we well, only have about that's yeah, fine. Yeah, five that's more fine. minutes. Okay. So basically. We, you and I could do a, a four yeah. hour symposium and maybe no we ought to think about that. I would that. love that. We ought to think about that because so, it's important stuff. It is. And I don't think it's being talked about <clears throat> enough. You know? And I'm not sure. I don't know. I know exactly what you're talking about. You know exactly what you're talking about. I'm not certain we're getting it across. No, I'm you sure. You never know. Right. Yeah. yeah. So go ahead. Finish up. <laughs> well, so yeah. So just basically, so the term came, I guess it was in the late 70s or the early 80s. So initially the term was adult children of, of alcoholics. And it's essentially the characteristics, the repercussions of growing up in an alcoholic family. So since then, and it was only probably a few years after the term initially came out, they then changed it to adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. Because what they found was that other types of dysfunctional families families can produce adult children. So what are the traits? You know, low self-esteem, people pleasing, approval seeking, um, afraid of abandonment, uh, care, you know, caretaking, fear of people. Um, I I would I would put another layer underneath that, which is sense of self is wobbly and dependent on what they get from the world. Yes. Uh, And and unregulated. A lot of depression. It's it's all about Uh, this. you know, our tr- like we were talking Tru- about the true self. It's the truth self yeah. goes into hiding as kids, and we develop this false self that yeah. serves us well as kids, right? Yeah. Like this helps us to survive. The problem is, is that we then carry this false self into adulthood, and it just sa- self sabotages and fuck, sh- fuck shit up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and again, let's talk about the the true self, so called. It's really she's talking about connecting to primary spontaneous feelings out of your body, mm-hmm. and when you're when you come from this false self world of codependency you you lose that you disconnect from it and it's it's way off in the distance it's very hard to connect back with it again and somebody has to bring you there because you're wired not that way anymore Mm-mm. yeah yeah it's all about that the rewiring right mm-hmm. that's why it takes a long time because we're re, literally rewiring the central nervous system to connect with the body and connect with itself so it's it's about integrating ultimately when i think about the interpersonal neurobiology. It's about parts of the brain rewiring. It's about the brain connecting to the body. It's about the body, excuse me, uh, generating impulses that we can feel. It's, uh, and, and for the average person, maybe that makes sense. But for somebody with these family systems, which again are very, very common, that's a very mysterious process. Yeah. And I guess, you know, the big, the big thing that I wanted to convey in, in my podcast is that there's nothing to be ashamed about, like with any of this stuff. And I, you know, I am so grateful for all of these experiences that I've had. I'm so grateful for Brian number one and Brian number two and all this stuff and all of the pain because it has shaped me into the person that I am today. It's given me depth. Mm-hmm. And um, I embrace all that shit and I'm not embarrassed by it. And so I lay it all out there in my podcast. Yep. And, you know, we need to embrace this stuff. And so let's do- all go embrace it. Yes. Adult Child Podcast. Yes. Go listen to that shit. Start <laughs> on the first episode. Yes. Listen to the whole thing. And not being ashamed and not being guilty is a really important part of this. Uh, and and the first you say it to your sponsor and then you start saying to your therapist and then you – regulate it and then you start telling everybody yes <laughs> so yeah yeah and that's important it and then you help other people right loses its energy and that that ultimately is the great gift in all this is is that you can share it with others and help others and that's what you're doing and that's so let's let's um at adult child pod again is the instagram yes please adult listen. child podcast do listen i think i think you'll particularly if you're struggling with any of these issues or someone in your life is struggling with them it feels like uh, you could really learn a lot and yeah, maybe listen great with. Guests. Can you listen with somebody? Yes. Yeah, like if and you're you will laugh. Together, I promise yeah. you will laugh several times each episode. You'll cry. You'll laugh. Which again, another reason I love working with alcoholics addicts. They're so goddamn funny. The things they do and the shit they've done. So it's mm-hmm. always so funny. And you got to be able to laugh at it, and not be ashamed of it, because humans are funny. Uh, listen, it's been a privilege this to talk amazing. to you, Andrea Ashley. Uh, let's do think about 
some kind of I don't know. There may be an opportunity to do, do a public presentation. Don't tease me with that. Well, I, I I don't know where it would be or how it would. But I just feel like we could very easily stand up and give a talk very easily. And and I don't know quite who it would be for. We'd have to figure out that audience. But it's important material. So let's just kind of let, let it, that kind of percolate along. And uh, thank you to Heather McDonald. Go listen yes. to Juicy Scoop. Juicy Scoop. <laughs> Good Christian it. service. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, for us, we appreciate you all being here, and we will see you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com.